You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. I was telling my class this morning I start I really enjoyed it when I enjoy it when I get a chance to preach and I really enjoyed this one because I was working on it last week and I said my mind is sort of like a dog after a rabbit you know it grabs a subject and just goes bing and off it goes and after about 19 pages I went I think I'm like overdoing it maybe <laughs> so but no we're really not going to be here until 4:30 um, but when I I have always written, you know, my mind thinks and my hand writes, and then I go back and go, oh, that's what I was doing. Um, So I have like 19 pages here. They're all paper clipped together because I'm going to try not to use any of them and just stick with this one. We'll see how well that goes. Uh, We're going to start with the story of Adam and Eve, and I'll I'll tell you in the beginning where I'm going. One of the things that um, I had thought a lot about when I was working on a Sunday school lesson from before was... The, the variety of people that come into the church, it's got to be the strangest family in the entire world. And I've met some really strange families. I come from a really strange family, so I know what I'm talking about. But when you come into the church, you find that there are people of all sizes, shapes, ethnic kinds, orders, disorders. Um, there are the, the clean and the dirty and the foul and the... I mean, it's just everything. When I was in Texas, we went to the cowboy church. And I'll tell you what, I've never been in a church with so many things that shined in my life. Um, my girlfriend said that you can't have too much bling in Texas, and she was not kidding. Even their cowboy boots were covered with rhinestones. I mean, um, when they go to the church in the cowboy church, they really go to church. Um, and But again, people of all sizes and shapes. There were some really, really, really old, old cowboys there. Um, and there were some really, really, really rich, um, well-dressed young couples there. I mean, it was just everything, every accent, um, every tongue. But I'm always fascinated by the people that come into the church. And I look around, and like most of us, I don't see myself the way you do, and you don't see yourself the way others do. And I look at the church, and I think, well, I know why God called her because, I mean, she sings like an angel. And I know why God called him because he can do this. And I know why God called you and you and you. But I've always, well, I spent years wondering at the beginning, what got me in the door? I mean, I spent uh, probably three years back there in that back row with my coat on because I figured somebody was going to look up and go, is she still here? Because I didn't know what I was doing here, and I figured, you know, nobody else would either. But with that in mind, I went through the, the scripture in my mind when I was young as, uh, or actually I went through the scripture as um, in my young early Christian days, and I looked at the people that God called. Um, and so, when I was getting for this, getting ready for this message, I went through in my mind some of the people that God has used down through from the beginning of time, wondering why He called them. Now, to God, they're the perfect choice. They were obviously the perfect choice for the job because they got the job done, and we're all here. But when you go back and you look at your life, you find out that they may have been God's perfect choice, but they weren't God's perfect people. Um, and they didn't belong in this building any more than I did. Um, they didn't earn their salvation any more than I did. They weren't any more useful to God than I would be, um, except to the extent that I could yield myself and let God use me like they did. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to read a little bit of scripture. Most of these stories I'm just going to pull from my mind, and I'll leave it to you to go back and check your scripture and make sure that I'm really telling the truth. But in the beginning, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. 
I'm going to go back to Adam and Eve and the big sin. Um, one of my favorite verses in here is the fact that it's squeezed in these verses is um, the fact that when um, Eve met up with the serpent, serpent and did her sin, Adam was right there with her. And that, that usually gets left out of the story, but really has nothing to do with the story right now. Eve didn't recognize that she had an enemy. And in that, I think, um, is one of the things that we should all identify with. I think in this day and age, particularly in our culture, we tend to forget that we have a supernatural enemy who will grab any chance that they can to turn God's word inside out, upside down, and backwards, and to lead us from the path that God has called us to. And Eve was the perfect example of that. So in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. So immediately Satan paraphrases what God said and says it wrong. Eve turns around and adds, you must not touch it, which is something God never said. So we're already getting so far off track that um, you, you know that they're going to be in trouble. It says that the serpent then said, you will not surely die. He said to the woman, God knows that when you eat of it, your eye will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And woman, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open. Eve had everything. Stop and think about it. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, from what all the scholars and biblical and scientific would say, the temperature was perfect, the climate was perfect. Every animal that was on the planet was friendly. Um, she wasn't afraid of a snake who came up and talked to her, which may seem very strange to us, but didn't seem anything out of the ordinary to her. So not only did they have everything in the world that they could need and want, um, it says that the Bible says that God came down and walked with them. They had a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Creator. What else could there be that she could have except that one thing? Think of it. There's only one thing on the planet that you can't have. What is it you want? We're not any different than her. It's usually that that we want. I thought of Eve when I was listening to Pastor preaching out on Esther when he talked about Haman. Remember Haman got called with the king to go and have dinner with, with Esther, which was a huge thing. No man ever got to see the queen except that the king allowed him and there were very few and far between. Haman is on his way home, walking on air to tell his family that not only had he had a meal with them, but Esther was going to have a second party and he was the only person invited. He was on top of the moon. His feet probably didn't touch ground halfway home until they came crashing down when they went by Mordecai and Mordecai did not bow. And here again, if you think Eve is strange for having everything in the world but wanting that one thing and screwing it for all of us because she had to have it, he was no different. He had everything in the world. He was second to the king. He could have had anything in the, in the entire 
kingdom. And that because there was one single man who would not bow to him, everything was like ashes. His feet hit the ground. His, his whole day was ruined. He went home and he told his wife about all these wonderful things that he had. But Mordecai didn't bow and it ruined everything. And he was so greedy for everything that he was going to kill a man to get it. Because then he would have everything. Then he would not only be second in the kingdom and just on top of the world, but there wouldn't be that one lousy guy who would not bow down to him when he went by. And I thought, how often we have everything. And most of us in this room really, truly have Maybe not everything in the way of the world, but everything we need. God has provided us with more than we need. I mean, the blessings abundant on, on those of us here um, are amazing. And yet there's always that thing that we want that is more than we have. And so often we stop looking to God and to what God has for us and the path he set for us because we can't stop going after that thing we don't have. And like Eve, we have it all and we lose that, which is really important, going after things that we don't really need but we so desire. Moving on down, Adam and Eve obviously weren't perfect. Did God reject them? Did he kill them? He could have. In fact, when it comes to them eating from that tree, it was true that they were told that they would die. But God had compassion on them, knowing who they were, he provided for all their needs, moved them out of the garden where they couldn't eat the tree of life and live forever, um, and started us on the path to a planet with 80 billion people on it. But again, he didn't kill them. He didn't throw them out. He didn't say, I'm never talking to you again. I'll have nothing to do with you, and put them out for the wild animals to eat. He cared for them. He loved them, and he offered them a way of salvation so that they too could continue their relationship with him. Going on down through history, I looked at Noah. Now, come on, Noah. Noah was the only righteous man on the planet when God went to look. And I went back and I looked at the scripture, and it says in there that um, 120 years before the flood, God had looked at the planet, and there was sin everywhere. And he was at the point where he had no use for humankind at all and was ready to wipe us out. But there was a remnant. There was a remnant from the line of the child Seth who had maintained their integrity, who had maintained their righteousness. And God said, for that remnant, I will not act. 120 years later, which wasn't even a whole generation in their day and age, he looked and there was only one man left. Can you imagine? One man out of all of civilization who maintained a relationship with God who was righteous. And so God said, okay, I'm going to wipe people off the earth, but because Noah is righteous, I will give him a way of salvation. I will give him a savior. And so he went to him, and we all know the story of how he built the ark. We probably played with the animals in Sunday school if we'd been around for a while. And Noah built the ark. He lived through all the, the awful things that must have happened to him between the time that God told him what was going to happen and the time that the rain started falling. Scientists say it had never rained, so when he told his neighbors he was building a boat because it was going to rain, I'm sure that got him um, a lot of laughs. I also know that unrighteous people don't like 
living next door to righteous people because it reminds them of what they know in their heart is the truth. And so I'm sure that the unrighteous people spent most of their time making Noah miserable because now not only was the only righteous man on the planet, but his righteousness was evident in that he was building a boat that he said God told him to build. So I would imagine that those years were horrible, but he maintained his faith in God. He maintained his righteousness. He managed to build the ark, um, load all the animals, and spent a year on that boat. It rained for 40 days, but it was 120 days before the water even started going away again. And it was over 360 days before he actually could step out of the ark again. But he did. So Adam, so Noah becomes the father of us all. And from his line, all of us were born. And he had three sons. What does Noah do? Noah was a husbandman, which means Noah grew things. He got off the ark, and the first thing that he did was he took and he planted a vineyard. Alfred Edersheim, who's one of my first favorite 19th century authors, said that um, there was a, a story that the Jews had carried down for generations, that the, the vine that, that Noah had planted had been taken out of the Garden of Eden itself. And he said, if that was so, no plant other than the original forbidden fruit had ever brought so much grief to humankind as that slip of a plant that was taken out of the garden because it became the first alcoholic beverage. And the destruction that it has caused to the human race since then is astronomical. Whether or not Noah knew, this is where we struggle with sin. We want to, to, we want a sin scale. You know, there's murder and there's adultery and there's stealing and there's and we want to just have this scale that says, okay, yeah, I know I sinned, but my sin isn't as bad as his sin because he was a murderer. I struggled with Noah's sin. Noah planted a vineyard. When his, his, his grapes were ripe, he drank some of the wine that had been made from the fruit of the vine, and he got drunk. And it says Noah, Noah drank from his fruit, uh, the wine that he'd made, passed out naked in his trunk. In his, I'm sorry, in his trunk, in his tent. So tell me where is his sin? In our society, it sounds like just another guy who came home, drank too much, took off his clothes, fell down and went to sleep. And that for us, we go, where's the sin? But in the culture of that day and in the righteousness of Noah, what he did was a sin. And it was a sin that would plague him for the rest of his life. But even worse... His youngest son, Ham, came along and he looked at him. And, it, and the scripture says he looked at his dad and he saw him laying there. And he went and he told his two brothers. So what? The intimation there, though, is that hallowing the name of your mother and father and obeying your mother and father was one of the prime commands of the culture. It was what the whole culture was built on. He had obviously lost his respect for his father because the word that where he looked on his father is a word that said he looked on his father. He didn't just go, like most of us would. He looked on his father. He saw him, and he rejoiced, and he felt contempt for what he saw. He didn't just go tell his two brothers. He ran down the track, going like this, to tell his two brothers, because he was rejoicing in his father's disgrace, is what he was doing. His sin was so bad 
And again, it's such a perfect example of how we can never have a scale for sin. That along later, generations later, in the book of Habakkuk, what Ham did is used by Habakkuk to draw a picture of the sin that the nation of Israel had committed that was so great that God had turned his back on them and had them taken into captivity. Now, most of us would never have equated those two things with the size of the sin, and yet it was. And what does this teach us? It only teaches us that even Noah, who was the most righteous man on the planet, and the only man who saved us from destruction, was still not righteous enough to save himself from sin. Like everybody who came from the beginning, from Eve on, he needed a savior, and, he, and God would provide one. I went and looked at Abraham, and Abraham was a lot of fun for me. Um, Abraham, we know, was called by God out of the nation before there were Jews and told, you know, your nation is going to be my family. I'm going to show myself to the whole world through your descendants. So I want you to leave where you are, pack up your family, and I want you to go where I'm sending you, and I'm going to establish you with millions of descendants who are going to be my presence in the world. And Abraham said, okay. And he packed up and he went. And along the way, he went a lot of places and he had a lot of adventures. And I know that we teach a lot of them in Sunday school. But the two that we probably don't teach are um, what I think of as um, Abraham's big lies. Abraham was moving around with, and he was a rich man. So Abraham moving around wasn't him and five or six family members. It was several hundred cattle and goats and sheep to feed them and chickens and manservants and maidservants and their children. And so moving around for him was a, a little bit of a bigger deal than us just packing our family and going to Iowa. There was a famine in the land and he went down into Egypt. And I know a lot of you know this story. Sarah, his wife, was beautiful. It's funny to me that we never hear anything. There are no great movies about Sarah, but there are about six zillion books about Helen of Troy, who was supposed to be the most beautiful woman on the planet. But Sarah was so beautiful that when Adam or Abraham with his whole family was going down into Egypt, he told her, if anybody asks you, tell them you're my sister. Because he said, she's so beautiful that if Pharaoh sees her, he's going to want her. And if he wants her, he's going to kill me to get her. So we'll just tell a lie and we'll say she's my sister and that way if he wants her, he can have her and I'll live. So he tells this, big, this, this man that God has called to be the father of the race that is going to show the face of God to the world lied to save his own life. He didn't trust God enough to keep him alive. So he lied. And those of us who have read the scripture story know what happened, that the, the officials of Pharaoh saw her and she was indeed the most beautiful thing they'd ever seen. They went and told Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, bring her on down. So they did. Only then God caught up with Pharaoh and explained to him that this was a married woman who belonged to somebody else, and that if he took her as his wife, really bad things were going to happen to him. And so Sarah is given back to Abraham. I wonder that Abraham didn't understand that Sarah might have been part of the prophecy I assume that when he told the lie and let Pharaoh take his wife, that he figured he'd just get another one to give him all those descendants that God had promised him. But God knew that Sarah, who was the wife of his youth, was integral. She was to be the mother of those children, 
and so could not be just traded off like, you know, a piece of livestock to save his life. So God works it around and he brings Sarah back to Abraham. And I can only imagine that the next ensuing years must have been fun because if I'd have been Sarah, his life would have been really, really, really bad. So he's going around and he runs into another place where he's going to have to settle for a while. And the king there is Abimelech, who is a big, powerful king. And what does he do? He does the same thing all over again. Hey, it worked for him in Egypt. Why not? So he says, look, if anybody asks you, tell them you're my sister. Evidently, he didn't learn anything the first time. Or he just figured that this was, you know, God would bail him out like he did before. And so, sure enough, the officials of Abimelech saw her and said, she's the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. And Abimelech said, get her for me. And he did. Only in this case, God came to Abimelech in a dream and he told him, this is a woman who belongs to another man. And if you keep her, you're going to get ill. Your kingdom will fall apart. And some of the most horrible things that you can imagine happening to you will happen to you. And Abimelech immediately got up and rather than killing Abraham, which is what he normally would have done, he was afraid enough from that dream of the power of God that he gave Sarah back, gave Abraham even more riches, and then told him to get out of the country. What I find is interesting is not just those two lies of Abraham, but what he did when Abimelech said, why did you do this to me? Didn't you know that God would come and bad things would happen to me because you did this? And I had never read before, or maybe I just didn't remember before, that Abraham said, well, she really is my sister. We have the same father, but we have different mothers, so she is my sister. It's not a lie. And besides, what I told her was, if you really love me, you can show your love for me. If anybody asks, say you're my sister. So even then, when faced with Abimelech and the fact that God has told him, give her back, he can't face up to his own sin in saying, you go, instructing her to do it. He says, you can show me how much you love me by saying that. So even then he's trying to put it back on her that, you know, what, if she hadn't loved him so much, she wouldn't have said it? I don't know. But it just seems like even then, when faced with the fact that God again is bailing him out by giving Abimelech a dream, um, Abraham still can't face the fact that it was his lie. That he didn't trust God enough to bail him out. He may have, he trusted God to give him millions of descendants to lead him all over the world and to give him nations that belong to other kings. But he didn't think that he could keep him alive as he went along the way. And that's really what he did. First we have Eve who lets Satan call God a liar and goes along with it. Now we have Abraham who has made a contract with God, a covenant with God, but again is showing over and over that he doesn't trust God to, to carry through with it. Um, we know the story of Abram and Sarah and what a mess they made when they decided that God's timing was off and they were getting tired of waiting and they decided to take care of the you know, um, descendants all by themselves and they're still fighting that battle. But again, perfect person? Could God not have found somebody who was a little more reliable than Abram? Evidently not. Evidently it was God's perfect choice. But again, this person who is, uh, even in Jesus' day, the Jews were saying, but we're children of Abraham, as if this was just the greatest thing that guaranteed them entry into heaven. And yet here we have Abraham who can't, couldn't 
trust God enough to get him from one place to another um, and lied. And yet God didn't say enough. I'm done with you. He didn't wipe Abraham out and start over again. But he offered Abraham like he offers us a savior. He uses the imperfect. He makes it perfect. He works with the tools that he has, knowing that no one is perfect. Down through scripture as we go, we'll look at the life of David. Um, David was always a fun one for me because David was a man after God's own heart. And yet on our sin scale, David was so far up at the top of that sin scale that most of us don't even want to hear about the sin. David not only committed adultery, took the wife of another man. But when he got this little letter... And I was thinking about it when I was thinking about doing this with comedy. I thought, he sleeps with another man's wife. A month or so later, he gets a note from her. And all it says is, I'm late. And that note from her took David down a path that made him a murderer. He tried everything he could to get her husband home and into bed with Bathsheba so that he could pretend that it wasn't his child that she was burying. And when that didn't turn out, he couldn't make that happen. <coughs> Excuse me. He killed him. So David, this man over, after God's own heart, whom God loved, becomes a murderer. In the early years, God was so close to David that when David was being pursued by Saul um, and who was taking every opportunity to kill him. He lived in caves. He lived in fields. He had nothing but the clothes on his back. Um, and only because of God's mercy did they hold up. Um, I mean, he lived in some abysmal conditions and a horrible, horrible life for many years. But he refused, regardless of the urging by those men around him, he refused to kill Saul because that wasn't his way. He maintained his righteousness through all that. So... What happened to David that he ended up murdering somebody? And I think when you go back and read it, you find that David, um, like so many others of us, took his eyes off God and started thinking, rather than going on the path that God had for him, he started walking his own path. And that's where he got into trouble. Those people were all in the Old Testament. And I know that those of us who, who are not perfect people would say, yeah, well, they were all prior to Christ. Um, after Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, so we ought to know better. I mean, with the Holy Spirit in us, we ought to be able to keep ourselves perfect. I mean, Scripture says, be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So then I went and looked at Peter, who is also one of my favorites, because I often speak without thinking things through first and um, have gained a lot of weight eating my own words. Peter did that all the time. He was always saying some things that weren't true. He was the one that jumped up and when Christ said, somebody is going to deny me, and he said, not me. I won't do that. I will never betray you. Absolutely never. And God said, you really shouldn't be so quick to speak. And he said, no, absolutely never. That will never happen. And we all know that, you know, it wasn't but a couple hours later when Peter was standing there and somebody said, aren't you with him? And he said, no, I don't even know him. And he not only did it once, he did it three times. Peter also, after... Uh, Going through Pentecost, getting the Holy Spirit, God gave him a vision that um, Gentiles were no longer unclean. They were to be welcomed into the church, that they were to have the full benefits of the Christian experience. And so Peter went out and he ministered to the Gentiles. And he ate with them. He slept, he slept in their homes. He fellowshiped with them. He was a family with them until a bunch of authorities from 
uh, Jerusalem Jewish authorities came out to look things over and Peter started backing up. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. He wouldn't stay in their homes. All of a sudden, those Gentiles weren't good enough to be in the church. And I wonder at the horrendous damage that Peter could have caused to the church for centuries had not Paul caught him and called him on it right then and stopped him and made him see his sin right then. But here's Peter who walked with Christ every day of his life. And even he, after his Christian experience, couldn't keep his feet on the path that, that God had set for him. Again, perfect choice for the rock of the church, but not a perfect person. I looked at all these people and I wondered why God chose such imperfect people. And then I realized that mainly it was because God didn't have anybody else to work with because we're all imperfect and we're all in need of a savior. And I don't know why God called me. I don't know why I'm in this church. I know that the scripture says that no one comes close to God unless God calls them. So if you're in the building today, you're here because God brought you here. And if you have found Christ as your savior, you're there because God made provisions for you specifically to be at a place where you could learn who Christ was and what he did for you. Um, and there's a world full of people who haven't had that opportunity or haven't taken that opportunity yet. Um, a world full of lost people. And I wonder, I mean, there are so many people out there who are so much more worthy to be standing here than me. Or so I thought until God made me realize that none of us is worthy. And it doesn't matter how hard we work or how much we do or how well we do it. There is none of us who is worthy to stand before God or sit in this church and claim our place or make our place in heaven. Um, no more than Adam and Eve were able to keep themselves sinless or Abraham or Noah or Peter or any of them. And it's because God loves us all and he used them to keep the church growing to a place where you could know. I mean, what if Peter had backed up? What if Peter had backed up from the Gentiles, gone along with the powers from Jerusalem who said Gentiles do not belong in the church unless they do this, 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 and this, and essentially become Jews? Where would you be? How? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be welcome here. We wouldn't know what Christ did for us. We wouldn't have been told that he did it for us. We would have been told that he did it for someone else. Um, there are a lot of groups out there who um, believe that Christ did it for some, but not for all. And yet, I would say that all, each one of us is lucky to be here and to know that Christ did it, not just for these special people, but for us. And that while we're not worthy, Christ is worthy and he makes us worthy. Eve got into trouble when she stopped looking at the things that God had given her and started looking at the things that weren't hers. Noah got into trouble when he started looking to his own needs instead of to the needs that God had given him. Ham got into trouble when he treated his father with disrespect and instead of doing what God had told him to do, what he had been taught was right to do, did what he felt he wanted to do, which was disgrace his father and shows that his father was no better than anybody else. Um, Abraham 
got into trouble every time he took his eyes off what God had promised him and started worrying about his own hide. As soon as he started trying to cover himself, he started doing things that were against the will of God and got himself into trouble. Um, all the way down through history, David. David had a great place in the line of God. What happened? David had sent his people off to war. He should have been with his troops and he wasn't. David wanted to stay away from just one more battle. I think David was tired of fighting. And he said, nah, it's an easy battle. I'll stay home and take it easy. They can go. I think sometimes we get to the point where we're tired. Just one more fight. I just can't take one more battle. So instead of facing the battle, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to just take it easy for just a little while. And then David started looking around, not at what God had given him, not at the job God had given him, not at the task God had set, not at the blessings God had given him, but he started just looking around until his eye fell on something he liked. And on down that road he went. When I think of David, I think of modern day um, computers and pornography. Um, how many people just to have something pop up in front of them that they look at and they go like this and then they look at it a little longer and then they look at it a little longer. And how many good godly men have you known who have fall, fallen flat on their face and have ended up totally disgraced? Because again, instead of looking at what God is giving them and instead of closing their heart and their eyes to the things that are out there, um, something pops up in their vision and they look at it just a little longer than they should. And we do that. We take our eyes off the path that God has and the vision that God's given for us and the things that God wants for us and we start looking at the things that please us as opposed to the things that please God. And we end up, like so many of them, um, maybe we're not up there on the sin scale of murder, but we're up there on the sin scale of walking away from the path that God has chosen for us. And stop when we stop looking at the things God has for us we can't go anywhere but down. We can't do anything but drift away. Peter, when he started worrying about how he looked to the Jewish officials, sinned by pushing people away from God. People that he had invited to the cross all of a sudden weren't welcome there anymore. Um, and I can't imagine what a grievous sin Jesus Christ would think that is when we use our position in the church to tell people that they're not welcome at the cross. Anybody welcome at the cross. That, to me, I, I wonder what Bible people re read when they say that there are certain colors or types or people or sects who are not welcome at the, at the cross of Christ. What Bible do they read? You know, what scripture do they see that says there is anybody excluded? Paul called Peter on it and he said, everyone is welcome at the cross. And God will call all of us. So if there are people in this room who have had just one too many battles and want to take it easy, I would just caution you, don't take your eyes off God because if you do, you know, a carpenter will tell you if you're half a bubble off at the beginning, you're three feet off at the end. And the path is a narrow one for a reason. So unlike what happened in these, keep your eyes on Christ, keep your eyes on the path. But if you are as imperfect as all these people that the Bible tells us about, as you're imperfect as probably everybody who has stood in this place or sat at that piano or written the words to the great song, just remember that there is no place that you can go that God cannot reach you. Um, 
no sin you could commit that is so grievous that God would not take you back. Um, and no person who is so far from God that Christ did not shed his blood to save him. So if those are your doubts, you can give them away because all of us are welcome at the cross.